Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming alive from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by my stuff. I've been trying to get it a bit more organised by adding a new set of bookshelves for the great library of RPGs. Sadly, my mother-in-law passed away recently and I've inherited some of her furniture. Whilst I've been off work, I've been attending to some upcycling, I think they call it nowadays, creating a bit of shabby chic from the bookcase and a rather wonderful chair that I wrestled with for days with high-potency nitromores to strip off the years and years of lacquered varnish. The chair was in the waiting room of the surgery for the local loco works, where she was the occupational health nurse. It's a great chair for reading in, as it's very comfortable, but not so comfortable that I fall asleep in it. It has a slight edge to it, as if it was haunted by the hundreds of patients nervously awaiting their examination. The shelves are a fine addition to the great library of RPGs and provide somewhere extra to store my games and my grognard files to the right. To my left is this ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. Oh, this is unusual. The Eternal Champion has not appeared this time. Instead, it is an avatar, in the form of Kathleen Bella, star of the Sword and the Sorcerer. And if you listen carefully, you can hear a polyphonic ringtone invented by her partner, Thomas Dolby. Hmm, interesting. Dragon Quest was published by Simulations Publications, SPI, in 1980 a company better known for their war games. But according to Dragon, Volume 5, Number 5, from November 1980, this was the company taking fantasy role-playing seriously. We played the simplified 1982 second edition, which had a core system that was percentile-based, which meant that it was frequently compared to RuneQuest. But it did some things very differently. There was a more of a risk to combat, which was comparable to the more gritty games that followed it, such as Warhammer. The magic was rich and based on ritual and extremely risky, with the potential to backfire. We'll look more closely at the rules in the second part of this episode. But I'm delighted to discuss the game with Chris Klug, who was the designer who developed the second edition. I've been playing with him, in Colin Spears' campaign, which has been revisiting some adapted white dwarf scenarios, such as The Lone and Level Sands, using the system. I've enjoyed rediscovering the game, as I was a big fan of it back in the day. Perhaps it's something about the demon summoning magic, or the cross between heroic fantasy and gritty simulation, that conflated the game, in my imagination, with the film The Sword and the Sorcerer by Albert Payun from 1982. I think it's one of the best fantasy films of the 80s. Other opinions are available, as you'll discover in The Grogglebox, when 
armchair adventurers Eddie and Blythe join me to watch the game for the first time together since around 1984. In the middle of the podcast, there's a first, last and everything from Rob Arcangeli, our Manchester correspondent. Last year, he was a player in two of our favourite games, Vert and Cthulhu Dark. He's always got something interesting to say about gaming, so it's great to hear an unusual first game he played, the game he last played, and a game that means everything to him. I'll be back at the end with some parish notices. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box. Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards, how our gaming of the past has influenced how we play today. I am very pleased to have in the Zoom of role-playing rambling, Chris Klug, all the way over there in America. Hello there, Chris. Hello. Oh, it's great to have you on. Whereabouts in America are you, uh, are you coming from then, Chris? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is at the western end of Pennsylvania near Ohio, uh, an area of the U.S. called Appalachia, which is coal country. And historically, it tends to be many hardworking people digging coal out of the ground <laughs> uh, and not getting paid very well. Pittsburgh benefited from all that coal when it began the United States steel industry. Pittsburgh is where that came from in the early 1900s. Now it's mainly universities and medical schools and healthcare. And that transition happened in the late 60s, really. I went to graduate school here, and really that's how I came back. So here I am. We always ask at the start of these interviews is, how did you get into gaming? What was the first game uh, that you played and who were you playing with? I think what started me towards my game career was a baseball simulation that I played with a good friend who lived across the street. You roll dice, players in the major leagues perform semi-realistically. So it was a simulation of professional baseball in the United States. And that sort of educated me about probability and the connection between a die roll and an event. That led me to playing war games. And my first war game was Africa Corps by Avalon Hill. And so by the time I was in to high school and really into college, I was a gamer playing both sports simulations and war games. And so when did you first encounter uh, role-playing games? That was because I was a subscriber to Strategy and Tactics magazine published by SPI. And two of the designers who worked at SPI were big Dungeons and Dragons players and would write about it. Uh, Eric Goldberg and Greg Kostikian. I think that if they hadn't written about it, I don't know whether I would have discovered Dungeons and Dragons. Maybe I would have anyway. But I remember very much being willing to try it because Greg and Eric had written so swimmingly about it. They 
probably did a review or something like that. So SBI, uh, for those people who don't know, that was a, a rival company to Avalon Hill, wasn't it? Yeah. SPI did games that were less expensive because they didn't have the same component quality that the Avalon Hill games did. SPI's publishing schedule was much more ambitious than Avalon Hill's. Uh, Avalon Hill was a printing company, so they made money in other ways besides war games. SPI had to exist on just their war games. So SPI might publish, you know, 12 games a year while Avon Hill was publishing one or two. And so after uh, reading about it, uh, how soon did you get playing and uh, how did that come about? And what, what, what were you playing? Well, that's, I think, the most important question you're actually going to ask me, even though you don't know that. <laughs> I was about to go to grad school. Uh, my I was studying theater, and Carnegie Mellon had at the time and still has one of the top drama schools in the U.S. And I was about to leave, and I got my copy of D&D. This is the blue book with the blue dragon on the cover, that edition. I really wanted to play it, and there I was in a graduate school with a bunch of theater people. Well, Theater people like to play act. That's what they do. They get paid for it. I just asked some friends of mine in the drama department to try this game with me. The reason that that's so important is I think my career as a designer would have gone in a very different direction if my first set of players had all been war gamers, because these drama students. We struggled with the rules and we rolled dice and we paid attention to the rules, but it was really about the shared improvisational nature of the game that really intrigued them. It was sort of like, we're gonna all agree that we're in a fantasy world, and for the parts of it that are tough to do in normal improvisation, which is you and I are swinging swords at each other. How do we figure out who wins? In, impro- in traditional improvisation, you figure it out, but there are no rules. Well, here was a set of rules, and I could roll a die, and I miss, and you roll a die, and you hit, and that part of it gets taken care of. So it freed us to tell stories. I had read Tolkien already, and I had read Michael Moorcock. But that was really the only fantasy I knew where it was, and that's quite a pair if you know the history, right? Because Moorcock didn't really like Tolkien very much. It was easy for me to imagine those worlds. From that moment, I never looked back. And from that moment, it turned out in retrospect, my games were probably uncommon. What I mean by that is, the type of thing that would happen at my gaming table wasn't worlds different from other people's, but I think it was slightly different because I always put the story first. I find it interesting, uh, Chris, uh, interviewing people from 
uh, the era, you know, the, the late 70s, that there seemed to be two paths of people who got into uh, role-playing games. There's, there's one strand who, you know, come from the history side and particularly military history and uh, war gaming. And right. There are those well, that's, people- where the, that's where it came from, right? Arneson yeah. and Gygax were miniatures players. Yeah, and I've met many people as well who are also uh, drama graduates or interested in the theatre. So there's all, those two uh, paths seem to converge in uh, role-playing. Right, and I was both. From that moment forward until until I really didn't play tabletop anymore, which is let's see, 30 years from that moment to the moment when I sort of took a little vacation from tabletop i always had drama people in my group and i always had women and that's probably you know you're drawing the venn diagram of that i think those two statements are related to each other right Mm. it was never boys night out for me both of those things altered how i perceived the goal of an evening's play if you understand what i mean yeah like, like what made a successful evening for me was defined by the players in the room and my players, you know, I always had female players, often more than one. And I always had people who wanted to tell stories. Yeah. So, um, you went on to uh, be a theater technician, didn't you? Working in lighting design. Right. Yeah. I was not an actor. I became a writer, a playwright later on. At the time, I was a lighting designer. What happened to me was you consume stories of a particular kind at a rate that other people don't, i.e., you read scripts one after the other, after the other, after the other. You design shows one after the other after the other right so you're not a passive participant in the storytelling process if you're designing a show part of the job of a line designer i mean you brought it up is not to just figure out what time of day it is although there's that (laughs) part of the job is in this story in this world what color is the sunlight. You're not doing naturalism. It's always symbolic. It's always metaphoric. And so you have to not just read the words on the page, you have to interpret the words on the page. So it's a different kind of of interaction with the material. That began a real love affair for me with the meaning of a story. What's the point of a story? That's what I teach. I teach that now. I teach students creative writing, game design, game production, but I teach them to look below the surface. Star Wars, when it's at its best, is not about spaceship. It's about something else. Um, And so since I was trained to do that when I was 20 years old, my games, my published adventures, my game designs 
are all about the what's beneath the surface. I guess with lighting design as well, it is the bringing together, or to stretch the analogy, bringing together story with something that's very technical as well, isn't it? So well, there's a set of rules <laughs> and uh, things that you have to observe. The the lighting design part prepared me for the computer game industry mm. because that is a combination of the technical and the creative. The uh, tabletop design is almost all creative. I mean, you have to master dice roll mechanics, and that's just not that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, creative use of dice roll mechanics, you know, uh, is another thing. But to understand whether you what you rolled is successful or not doesn't take that much. Um, understanding the limitations of software design, that's, that's a lot more complicated. So how did you make the uh, move from being a player uh, and also working and getting into... Uh, game design i had come out of drama school and i was a freelance designer working out in new york i was working as an assistant on broadway and regional theater doing my own designs i was a resident designer at a theater doing that means you do every one of the shows um <clears throat> and i had worked for uh, as a lighting designer for a rock band for a while, relatively successful rock band. So who was that? But, Do you mind uh, Todd Rundgren. Oh, Todd my goodness. That life, it's all freelance work, so there are hills and valleys. I was playing war games and my role-playing game while I did that. And Simulations Publications Incorporated, SPI, had a well-publicized Friday night playtest they hosted every week. And I lived right outside of New York City, and I'd always wanted to go. But Friday night, usually something else was happening. I was working or just didn't feel like getting in the car and driving into New York. But one Friday night, I drove in. It was on a lark, actually. Just did it. And I sat down, and the way it worked was that you showed up at the desk, and if it was your first time there, they sort of found a game to give you to play based on what one of their games you knew already. What Because you, if you're going to spend three hours learning a game system, you're not going to get any testing done. And I knew their Civil War system, so they handed me a, a game that, it turns out, never got published. But it was a tiny little game uh, based on a small Civil War battle. And at the end of the evening, this designer came over. He sat down and I had some reasonably intelligent things to say. And he said, so which of our games do you play? And I said, well, what I'm playing a lot of right now is Dragon Quest. And he said, really? I'm like, yeah. And he said, well, you know, we're looking for freelance writers. Would you be interested? And I'm like, sure. And he said, okay, I'm going to tell my boss. Let me get your phone number. The details here are a little fuzzy, but I think by Wednesday of the next week, I had gone in to meet with his boss and they gave me an assignment to write a freelance adventure. 
It was simple and short. It was an audition, right? So a friend of mine and I got together and we wrote the adventure. I knew the game system. He was a fellow GM, but he didn't know the game system. So we collaborated. They liked it, offered me, based on that one adventure, a job helping John Butterfield finish Universe, which would have been their second role-playing game. It was supposed to come out that summer, right? So this is March. So in April, I started full-time working at SPI. The game shipped, came out in July. By then, they had decided they needed to do a second edition of Dragon Quest. So they gave it to me. And that's how it started. A series of events. Look back at February of that year, I would have never thought that's where I'd be. But by middle or end of April, I was working full-time for SPI. You were working on the rules, weren't you, the uh, next edition of the rules, but also a uh, line editor for the different supplements that came out? Well, yeah. Um, it was a small company. Hmm. There were probably, let's see, John and Eric and David and myself and Brad. So there's probably five full-time designers and a number of freelancers. Because I was the only designer on staff who regularly played role-playing games, they just gave every role-playing thing they needed to me. So when you were given uh, the uh, role of editing the new edition, were you given free reign to change whatever you wanted? or were you given... No. So back in those days, photo mechanicals were the way you printed a book. You had big piece of paper, two pages on it. Uh, you would lay out the type using sort of a thick piece of paper that the photo typesetting machine would spit out, sort of like, I guess, a really high-res laser printer, right? I think it was chemical-based, if I'm not mistaken. So you would paste with rubber cement that down on this bigger piece of paper, and then you'd take a photograph of it, and that would make the thing that ran through the printer. And, and so they were not going to relay out the three books of Dragon Quest. That was not going to happen. So my job was redo, simplify. That was clear. Simplify the original combat system, which was an action point system that was complicated. But I could only use the number of column inches that the original combat system used. A column inch is literally what it sounds like right? Number of inches from the top of the type to the bottom of the type in a particular column. If you have three columns on a page and each column is six inches long, you'll have 18 column inches on that page. So I was given a column inch count. What you write cannot exceed whatever it was, whatever the original system took. And really you translate that into word. And SPI had this piece of paper that you typed on because we're typing still. Columns were specific columns. Margins were specific. And the number of lines were specific so that they could say, you've handed in 30 pages and they could immediately in their heads do, that is 54 column inches or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Because 
their relationship was preordained. So I had a page count, which I couldn't exceed. And so that's how I designed it. I figured out what my players would like. They had played the system. They knew what was good and what was bad about it. So we collectively sat around the table and tested a bunch of my ideas. I remember writing on the subway. I have a notebook someplace with every one of the notes I took about things I wanted to change and then wrote up that version. I looked at other game systems. I was, as some people have pointed out, influenced by RuneQuest 2. Never, I'd never played RuneQuest 2, but they had some interesting ideas. I So I borrowed a little bit from that. I borrowed a bunch from what my players wanted to do. And I used bits and pieces of the original game system. And that's how I did it. For those uh, people who listen, who don't know Dragon Quest, how would you describe it to them? What, you know, what, what are the essential elements of uh, Dragon Quest? Boy, that's a good question. A desire to give the players activities to do inside the fantasy world that evoke the feeling of being there. That is partly delivered by the idea of going to a percentage-based die rolling system. It's a D100. And and so the game expresses itself like you have a 23% chance of doing X. And I do think, even though that seems like an arbitrary sort of decision, I do think that that creates in the player's mind a sense of how easy or hard something is. And if if you look at 5th edition D&D, nobody in their right mind would claim that that game is anything but a roaring success. I Everybody I know who plays tabletop has either tried 5th edition or plays 5th edition religiously. But I'm not criticizing 5th edition. But when you're when your difficulty is 22 and you're adding plus seven to your D20 roll, that's an abstract idea. How much more difficult is a 22 than a 15 if you're trying to roll above it? It works. It's great. Wonderful. But if your chance is 23%, it conjures a difficulty in your head. That's all I'm saying. So I, I think that that being the dice system that they chose, whether it was serendipity or intentional, was a plus towards the goal of giving the player activities that mimic what a warrior would do, what a magic user would do. Um, and I, I think that when the game is successful, what it does is it transports the player into a world where, doesn't every fantasy game do this? Mm. Where magic work and the things you do to get magic to work are similar to the things that we historically ascribe that magic users actually do. Um, The props, the trappings, the idea that you draw a circle of protection on the ground, that all sort of comes from research, because SPI's designers were really good at research, into real-world magical practices. 
one of the things the game did was like the a whole demon section comes from the Lesser Key of Solomon. Uh, so it used existing writings and tried to map them into a game system. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and so the game has a verisimilitude about it. Yeah. And I think for fans of the game, that is a plus. Magic isn't automatic. It can sometimes go wrong. Demons are real. I, I knew that about the game at the time. Like one of the things that appealed to my players was D&D felt like an abstract. Um, armor class, what exactly is that? I mean, I know what it is. You know what it is. But what does that mean? Because that's not a term that real warriors use, if you know what I'm saying. It's an abstract. Real warriors say I'm wearing leather or I'm wearing plate, and it, it affords me this much protection against these kind of weapons. So the clo- when the game succeeds, and... You know, looking back on it 40 years ago, it's not a perfect game. But when it does succeed, it evokes a feeling. And I think for fans of the game, even though we can get into a discussion of classes versus a skill system, like we can like go into a rat hole about that theoretical sort of stuff, I think the game succeeds because it gives you a feeling of being there. Yeah. I think uh, what struck us playing it back uh, back in the day when we picked this up was particularly the magic system because it uses uh, schools of magic, as you say, and there is a certain authenticity to how the magic works and it makes uh, gameplay unusual, doesn't it? Well, I mean, you know, how ironic is it that you're using a word like authentic and yeah. magic in the same <laughs> in the same sentence, but I think that's a strength, and I think that that comes from reading a certain set of authors of fantasy literature mm. who would try to figure out if magic was going to work, how would it? You know, in in modern fantasy parlance, magic systems are described as hard versus soft. Soft is Tolkien, right? Stuff happens, right? And, and, you know, the classic simulationist problem with Gandalf is why doesn't he use magic more? Just saying. <laughs> right? If he can do this, why can't he do that? Hard systems are very detail-oriented. It works because you're doing this thing in this way. There's a cost, which Dragon Quest might have been the first system to use that kind of thing. Well, no, RuneQuest did. This idea that you have a point pool and you're spending points to cast spells, right? As opposed to D&D, where that hadn't entered, I don't even know whether it's there now, the idea that you had a resource pool that you were spending. And hard systems, there's a cost in some fashion. You grow tired or... You have a battery that powers the spells. It's a more simulationist kind of method. You know, if you come upon a situation where it's going to cost you a lot to cast a spell, the game system isn't telling you only once a day. What's telling you once is how much how much power you have in your battery, if you follow what I mean. And I think details like that is what 
gave you the authentic feeling like there there was a process and you were getting better at it and there was always the risk of failure and that appeals to a certain kind of role player a yeah. role player who wants to feel like they are there in that world and i know that you've started uh, playing the game again recently so how does it feel coming back to it uh, after all this time Well, where to start that discussion? All right. In no particular order, reading the text evoked a different universe of gaming. Um, the, the books were clearly written assuming that everybody reading these books was a god. And if one thing certainly separate tabletop today from tabletop in 1979 is it's much more of an inclusive audience than it was. Um, I was joking with somebody the other day about how you would go to Origins or Gen Con in 1981, and it literally was like, oh, my God, across the room, is that a woman? <laughs> it just That's the way it was. I, I used to joke, I don't anymore, but I used to joke that if I had a nickel for every design meeting I've been in where... The question was asked, how do we get women to play games? I'd be far more wealthy than I am now. Because for a long time, that was the goal. Now, women play games like it's not even a thing, right? Video games, tabletop games, thank God that has changed. But it has changed. And these books were not aware. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a tone. It's, it's a tone more than anything else. Second thing is the game lacks social interaction systems. It has zero of them. Um, and I wasn't really aware till I read the rules as written that my group had supplied all of that in their improv-centric style. Um, but modern games require more roles to resolve do I persuade the guard to let me go past? Just to pick an easy one, right? Uh, I'm going to bluff, right? And you role play it a little bit and you roll dice. That's a pretty typical modern systemic choice. Game has none of that. Um, and then there's some other stuff, but the biggest gap is the lack of social systems. Um, the other thing that's interesting is, like almost every other game at the time, except for RuneQuest, the game came without a world attached to it. The world is implied. You know, when you use a word like colleges of magic, it implies a world system. It implies civilization. You're not out in, you know, you're not traveling around the world with a bunch of nomads. You're in a city. It implies a world but it doesn't really provide the world. And that's because it's 1979 or 1980, and most games had no world attached. Fantasy Trip, no world, right? D&D, really, no world. I mean, Gary would write adventures from his campaign, but like the world of Greyhawk hadn't come out yet. The only thing that was out there was Glorantha. There was Glorantha material. And probably some of Imperium from Mark. But the box set didn't come with that stuff. And now I don't think you could get away with that. I, I think that you'd have to be explicit. 
this is the world that in which this system exists. And that that's what we were planning to do. Everything we were planning to do was to deliver on the implicit promise of the world that was, in, you know, was sitting there but below the surface of the rules. But that's another thing that strikes me. Um, Thanks a lot uh, for that, Chris. And you're going to come back and face the Games Master screen. Yeah. Hello, my name is Rob from sunny Manchester, and I come to first, last and everything without a podcast, blog or even a Twitter account. I've just been enjoying games for the majority of my life and I love talking about them. I have just taken my first steps in publishing my own games, but that's another discussion. My first. My first is neither the Redbox D&D, though I was aware of this thanks to my brother and his friends, nor RuneQuest, which I actually only ended up playing this year. But it was West End Games' Star Wars the role-playing game, in particular the second edition with Darth Vader on the cover. Now, I grew up in a Star Wars household. A taped copy of the trilogy was almost constantly being played, including the bit where it switched to a goofy cartoon when my granddad changed the channel during the recording. I was also aware of various Games Workshop games, such as Hero Quest, Space Crusade and Woofrup, again through my brother and friends. So when I saw a copy of Star Wars Roleplay Game in the Ultringham branch of BTs, I thought all my gaming dreams had been answered. So began years of roleplaying in the Star Wars universe, my best friend Andy often being the only other player, until some others from school saw the light of gaming. Together we explored this wonderful galaxy, Andy usually playing a belligerent Wookiee, and me a hotshot gambler. And between us, we mowed down legions of stormtroopers, pirates and rancors, swapping GM duties while we added new players. Now this was back in the dark times, the early 90s, when Star Wars was a bit of a has-been, only kept alive by the occasional novel, and then the RPG itself, so seeing all these supplements coming out that covered the unexplored corners of the galaxy kept me reading long into the night. Word on the playground was that George Lucas was going to do a series of films about the Clone Wars. I wonder if they ever came out. To be honest, watching the new films like Solo and Rogue One and shows like The Mandalorian made me wonder if Lucasfilm were listening into some of mine and Andy's adventures. I would take source books with me on holiday to read and reread while in the back of the car. I rolled up countless unvisited systems using the planetary guides, trying to roll dice on the back seat without them bouncing into the footwells. On a trip to the USA, we popped into a game shop and I was blown away with the amount of books that had come out for the game, a far cry from the handful I would see in BTs or Apocalypse Games in Affleck's Palace. Many of our adventures would be movie-adjacent, with us visiting the Death Star scant days before the Rebel attack, and in one adventure, our bounty hunters were in Jabba's court when a mysterious self-declared Jedi visited. Thankfully, we didn't take up the invitation to watch an execution in the desert. Sadly, we lost Andy only two short years ago, still in the middle of an RPG campaign of my everything. But I will always think of him playing Star Wars. His memory will be with me every time a Wookiee barrels into a squad of stormtroopers or wrecks, wrecks havoc in a cantina during a game. I miss you, buddy. The Force will be with you. Always. Now, this may be heretical in some circles, but back in those heady days of 2015, when Games Workshop blew up the old world in the Warhammer universe, I was pretty happy about it. Now, I do have fond memories of the world that was, having played Warhammer Fantasy Battle, and Woofrup, 
that's how it's pronounced, through the years, but it all got a bit staid and dull in my mind. There was only so many times chaos could sweep down through Kislev, only to be stopped by the Empire at the borders before it all got a bit silly. And don't start me on the Tomb Kings appearing in every corner of the world somehow. Anyway, when Age of Sigmar came onto the scene, I was overjoyed and jumped in with two feet. I loved the new scope of the setting, going from pseudo-Renaissance German armies fighting in a muddy field, to gods and monsters battling over portals across the mortal realms on the back of giant floating beasts swimming in seas of boiling lava. It was like going from Tolkien to Moorcock. And then, when an RPG was announced, I was chomping at the bit to get going. The new setting was great and all, but it did need a bit more depth, so I started to wait for the announcements. And wait, and wait, and wait. Anyway, fast forward to 2020, and I'm currently wait running two campaigns of Cubicle 7 Soulbound, and having the time of my gaming life. The players start at what I would guess is around 5th level D&D. I don't know, I've never really played D&D properly. So from the get-go, are battling hordes of enemies, or teaming up to bring down great drakes and more crushers. Imagine giant dragons with even bigger orcs on the back. I've played through the starter set, highly recommended, and I have a group exploring the brand new RPG-specific setting of Brightspear, battling chaos demons, gloom spike gits, and threats from within the population itself. While another one of my groups have just set out on the high seas of Anvilgard, hunting for a crashed Dwarden airship. Meanwhile, events in the main tabletop Age of Sigmar timeline have just taken a dark and violent turn, which will affect both of these games going forward. Playing in a living, dynamic setting that changes as we campaign is a huge appeal to me, especially as some of the games and campaigns played at the beginning of Age of Sigmar's life on the tabletop are now folded into the canon history of the setting. I can say I fought in the Realm Gate Wars. Cubicle 7 have done a stellar job as they always do, They've really showcased the art and the environments of the mortal realms, and the rule set is super easy to get on board with. D6 only. I can only recommend Soulbound for those who want their fantasy high with a capital H, and to play heroes, smashing apart enemies of all that is good and right. Well, at least from your perspective. Also, the idea of an entire part of the Empire being ruled by vampires, and no one bothered about it, that was rubbish. My everything. If there's one thing that I love in a game, tabletop or video, it's exploring a world, picking through the ruins of times before, and imagining the peoples and societies that once populated it. This is spilt over into my real life, with me studying archaeology at university, and becoming a tour guide in my home city. It just appeals. My favourite bit of Lord of the Rings are when they are seeing the ruins of Arnor, and the fallen statues of the kings of Numenor. I get an almost sense of nostalgia for worlds I never knew, and it never fails to produce a thrill. So when I found out there was an RPG based entirely on the exploration of the past and the unknown times beforehand, I had to have it, and thus my love affair with Monty Cook's Numenera began. I really cannot get enough of this wonderful game, and the setting, the ninth world, Earth one billion years in the future, with piles of lost technology, ruins and knowledge scattered across the world for the players to explore. I have now run four separate, although at some points interlinked campaigns, and I think successfully as a con game at Grogmeetish 2020. And the best part is, I'm nowhere near scratching the surface of the setting. The world is just that vast you can explore, create your own communities, wage wars, travel through the oceans, time, space and dimensions, and you'll not even see 1% of what it has to offer. My groups have explored Navarre, the seat of the Amber Papacy, Methunis, the cold desert, the plains of Kataru, 
a satellite orbiting Earth. They unleashed a mad god by accident on that one. Literal hell, and yet there is so much more to discover yet. The liminal shore really does look nice this time of year. The rules, now known as the cipher system, are light, which appeal to me. The GM doesn't roll a die, perfect for these days of virtual play, and at this point I have a handle on the system which I really haven't had since Star Wars back in the day. Everything in the world is rated on a scale of 1 to 10, which gives you almost everything you need to know when it comes to their rules. You then multiply that number by 3, and that's what you need to roll equal to or over on a d20 to succeed. Skills, help from other players, assets, these can all bring those numbers down. After all, you can't roll over a 21 on a single die. For example, at its base level, an enemy could be level 2, meaning if you want to attack it, you need to make a level 2 roll, 6 or more, but also the same to avoid its attacks, and the same to charm its pants off. You might put a bit of flavour in though, and say its attacks are at level 4, and has a stealth level of 5. There's a bit more nuance than that to the system, but if all the rules fall out of your head, the level 1 to 10 rating is the key to remember to keep the game going. This system lets you knock out an event or an NPC in literally seconds, especially with the many handy card decks available to the GM. I've got one in my hand right now. So, let's say I need a quick person for the players to talk to. They are... Iona. They've got a spindly appearance, tactful demeanour, a scholarly personality. They're level 2 in all tasks, except for academic and research-related tasks, where they're level 4. And they've got a distinguishing feature, they smoke a curved pipe. That's it. Everything now for Iona is needed. Done. Nothing else. I've bought many of the card sets that Monty Cook Games produce, allow me to create ruins, dungeons, enemies, weird events, and as just demonstrated, NPCs in a matter of seconds. With a few card pulls before a session, I can get a sense of what the night ahead will hold. This might all sound a bit blowing my own trumpet, but I finally have a system I can finally pull a game together for without really any prep, which gives such a sense of freedom to playing. In these days of lockdowns, various tiers, it's lovely to be able to bring various combinations of my regular players back to the ninth world over and over. Oh, and I should really mention the ciphers. If you want to test your improv skills as a GM, give your players a random, and a truly random, no fudging, selection of one-shot abilities, magic items, doohickeys that can blow a hole in any plot without a second thought. Trap the players in a perfect sphere of solid steel. I guarantee that's when someone will remember the dimension jump device they picked up four adventures earlier and whip the group out quick sharp. But that's half the fun. The world is mad and weird, and it should keep both the players and GMs on their toes. So, that was my first, Star Wars, Last, Soulbound, and Everything, Numenera. I hope you enjoyed the listen. If you ever do want to chat about these games, or any others, I can be found on the Grognard Files Discord as Jelly Rovers. Don't ask. A deadly sorcerer is called out of nightmare. By a ruthless king driven into evil. And a mystical sword is forged for a mighty warrior who rises out of legend to topple a kingdom. The sword and the sorcerer. I know what I lose upon the world.
tell us where he is and save us all. Welcome to Grogglebox. I'm in the room or Zoom of role-playing rambling with uh, Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. And uh, Eddie. Hello, Eddie. Hello there, Dirk. All right, we've got some uh, beers on the go, ready to talk through uh, today's subject, which is Sword and the Sorcerer, a classic fantasy film. Well, have you got your glasses charged, lads? What have you, what have you got yeah. in yours? Uh, what are you drinking? I've got Whap, Weasel, Goldings and East Kent. Who knows? I'll drink anything. <laughs> I'm, I'm on a it's Brooklyn Lager. It's not lager, is it? It's not really like lager, is it, at all, which is no, a good it's thing. It's a bit heavier. Yeah, it's nice. From the Brooklyn. Is that from the yeah. Brooklyn in Great Lever? I've got a, a late shift, which is uh, an IPA, and it's just got a novelty can. It's got a raccoon uh, dressed as a gangster wrapper. Oh, yeah. uh, oh, yeah. Too nice to throw away them cans, aren't they? Mm. I must admit that I am drawn towards the novelty can. Yeah, it does work, doesn't it? It shouldn't. It shouldn't, but it does. Raccoon dressed as a gangster would catch your eye, would catch my eye. It would make me buy it. I like to think I'm a connoisseur, but I'm not. I think we used to drink, have a drink in those uh, years in the mid 80s while we watched uh, videos like Sword and the Sorcerer we used yeah. to get those uh, back then you used to get Boddington's in two litre bottles two litre <laughs> bottle yeah that's right yeah big plastic plastic bottle with, with Boddington's beer the height yeah. of sophistication it was oh, yeah. yeah we thought we thought yeah. we were men weren't we walking yeah. down uh, Walker Avenue with these uh, bottles and they used to, for some reason, have like a, a plastic base, didn't they? Oh, used to. Yeah. yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Like Why? I don't know. I stop it falling over, but could they not make it part of the bottle? There was always things in my mum's magazines about turning them into plant pots and that kind of thing. But yeah, we used to go and we used to watch um, films together, usually on a Sunday for some reason. Sword and Sorcerer was, was one of them. I don't think I actually saw it when it came out. I think it's one of those films that did grow uh, with VHS. You know, it was uh, one of the staples. I know it was one of the staples because I used to get it all the time. Um, I used to go down to uh, Mr Patel's on Swan Lane and they used to do two for one. And I always used to get this one as the extra one. Just <laughs> <laughs> watch it again. I don't, okay. rem- I don't remember it at the cinema, being at the cinema. I no, don't. I, sure. I, was, been, I don't remember that. I don't remember watching it all back, back then. But when... I would have guessed that it would have been in a video at your age. I don't think we were old enough to see it when it came out of the cinema, and I'm not sure it would have got a big release over here because it was an independent film. It wasn't a studio movie. It was like a very low-budget film. It did really well in America. I mean, I think uh, it was the highest-grossing independent film when it came out, but it did. It's one of those that found a new life on video because it had a really great cover. Um, Arguably the best thing about it, you could yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, and it must have been at a time when I was uh, old enough to get it because I think it was a time when Mr. Patel didn't ask too many questions when he was handing over the videos. <laughs> let's, let's use a bit of a rude video or clearly a video nasty. Everything in between, no questions asked, I, okay. I don't think. So I know this film really, really well and watching it again, you know, I know every beat of it. And I will go into it, but I do think it's one of those films that you have to see many times to work out what's going on. <laughs> I think so rewatching it's it is the first time I've understood what's going on. Maybe it was the Boddingtons, who knows? I don't know who the sorcerer was. It shows how much I Well, it's, it's confusing. <laughs> it's not confusing. To say it's confusing because there were two villains is yeah. is, is con- condemns our intellect a bit, doesn't it? Because it's not that complicated <laughs> to have two villains. But, but in some ways, in that kind of film, 
I suppose it is. 12-year-olds, it was. Yeah, in that, in that kind of film, you're expecting one villain. Yeah, I think, um, I think I think it's not complicated. Characters are quite clearly drawn. It's just that it sometimes doesn't take the time to explain the relationships between the different characters. It just kind of barrels on, doesn't it? It's one of those uh, plots that doesn't stop. It just keeps going. It doesn't really tell you who everybody is and uh, what they're no. doing there. I think uh, it, it was released around the same time as Excalibur, Dragon Slayer, and uh, Conan the Barbarian, which we've covered previously. And I think last time, Eddie, you said Conan the Barbarian was the best sword and sorcery film of the 80s. Yeah. Perfect RPG fodder. But I'm going to say that this is a challenger. It's way down the below Krull. Krull is the greatest fantasy film of the 80s. You know it Lady is. Hawk, yeah, but it's... It's not as good as Conan, but all of them are in a certain rank. You can mix them up. But I've got Conan at the top and the, the sword and the sorcerer at the bottom. I dis- I disagree. I disagree because there's just something about it. It's the uh, grittiness of it and perhaps some of the, the visual flair that I just don't think you get in some of those other films. The tone is all over the place. There are, there are gritty moments, but there's also daft moments. It, it's a little bit confused about its tone, I think. At times, but yeah, there are some there are some gruesome bits. I mean, it starts off quite gruesomely, doesn't it? Which I'm yeah, sure we'll talk about. We'll go on that onto that. For the case for the prosecution, uh, is it the defence? I don't know which side am I on. I've got a contemporary <laughs> magazine here, which is a cinema magazine, the magazine of motion pictures, and it was a short-lived companion to Starburst, and it covered non-genre films. And I've got a quote here. If you allow me to quote from it, at the cost of something like four million dollars. This is a sword and sorcery epic that delivers the excitement and action that Conan the Barbarian failed to do at five or six times that figure. He's brought an expert witness there. Expert witness. Just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's better, does it? I don't know whether it's the wigs that let it let it down or what. <laughs> the, act, the actors don't know how to pitch it, I don't think. You've got bits of humour put in there and the actors trying to... Sometimes we're serious. You've got Simon McCorkadale, melodramatic, and, and Richard Lynch hamming it up as the villain. But here's Matt Houston, or whatever his name is, Lee Horsley, who's buffooning his way through the middle. Somewhere. It's not. <laughs> it looks like Barry Gibber, the Bee Gees. It does. I, I, I thought exactly the same. It's, it does it's look like Barry Gibb. Lee Horsley playing Matt Houston, looking like Barry Gibb. <laughs> <laughs> That's because yeah. the wig. Let me give you some pie on facts, right? Pie on facts, the man who directed it and created it. Let's bear in mind as well that this was an original story, albeit it's ripped off from Conan. I'll give you that. But it is uh, an attempt to create something new. And he is from Hawaii and he worked in Japan for, with Kurosawa. I think some of that visual style that he picked up it comes through. He developed a reputation of being like a, a low-budget cult figure doing straight-to-video stuff. And he did. I don't. Have you ever seen Cyborg with Jean-Claude Van Damme and mm. uh, Kickbox? Yeah, so. He oh, directed did he? those. Did he? And he was in the running to do Total Recall and Spider-Man. Well, Spider-Man. He did actually. He did actually do the Captain America film in 1990, which was rubbish. Was this his first film? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. He did. He did uh, a short movie that was seen by Mifune, who was Kurosawa's actor. You know, from uh, Seven Samurai. He liked his work and brought him over to uh, Japan, where he, he worked in the studios and learned 
his skills, but he comes across in interviews as one of those people who is constantly irritated by everything. And I think he just did not fit right. into a studio system. And so he's always worked independently on low budgets. I just get the sense that he's, he's hard work. Did he write the story? Did he write? Yeah, because he concentrates on the visuals and creating scenes. Like you said, the tone is all over the place because what he quotes is that he was inspired by uh, The Three Musketeers. And I don't know if you know this film. Uh, it's a Sean Connery film, uh, The Wind and the Lion. Have you seen that one? By John no. Milius. No, I've heard that one. If you see stills of it, you'll you'll know it, The Wind and the Lion. It's, um, Connery plays The Last of the Barbary Pirates. I don't know whether it's a wig film. He's got a turban on for most of it. And he kidnaps uh, an American senator's wife. It's all horses and swords and that kind of thing. Right. You can see the two, I think, an attempt to bring those two things together, the kind of madcap three musketeers with that sense of adventure and daring and uh, like moral issues being played out. It's just not done very well, that's all. I think the story is classic role-playing game stuff. Exactly. It? The young son whose father's killed by an evil warlord. He, he gets a sword to avenge his father. There's a princess there who needs rescuing. And that's classic stuff, isn't it, with an evil sorcerer at the side? I mean, yeah, that's D&D &D all, all yeah. over, isn't it? But it's... Uh, and let's not forget that most of it's spent in a dungeon, isn't it? it they spend most of the time... <laughs> yeah, literally in a dungeon. Yeah. In a dungeon. Which is one of its yeah. main... Faults, I think, needs opening up a bit. I, you know, I thought exactly the same. Yeah. It's all done on like it all feels like it's done on dodgy, cramped sets, and they've not got the money to have any room yeah. to move. So all the fights seem a little bit, you know, as if they're, they're fighting each other, but making sure they don't break any scenery at the same time. Compare that yeah. to Conan, where there's tons <laughs> of well, there's just tons of exterior shots in there with fantastic sets as well, with these storms and this temple yeah. with these steps coming down. Yeah, there's money involved in that, but I think if it had a few more outdoor shots, I think there were very few, and even then they were seemed to be in the same place with the side of the coast. Weren't this is why nostalgia plays tricks with you, isn't it? This is why coursing through my blood and veins, I'm getting quite, on the one hand, like angry with you, but also <laughs> kind of sad that you can't see what I can see in this uh, film. Because that very end word, it says, you know, that in the sequel, this is the first of the adventures of Talon. That, to me, was great. There's going to be more of this because I love it. And well, I love that character. I think, yeah, you're right in the sense that my argument when we did Conan, that there was very few fantasy... I mean, our argument all along is that there's very few fantasy films around at the time. Very trad fantasy stuff, not myth, Greek mythology or anything, time travel stuff. But traditional fantasy, there's very few. You can list them yeah. all on one hand. <laughs> I think you do, clearly watched it more than we did on on the kind of eternal loop. We probably it's, came it's, it's, the, it's the equivalent of one of those albums. <laughs> one of those albums. Think... Those, he says he he says he got it from Mr. Patel's or the the two for one. But I, I bet he went in and Mr. Patel had it ready for you. Oh, back again, young Dirk. Do you want this one? What's the other one you want? I know you want this one. But what's the other one? In the two. I, one? I remember. I remember <laughs> the day that it wasn't there, and he said sorry to me. He said sorry. He apologised. It, it was out of his hands because he was like, he was an agent for this uh, company, and they'd uh, withdrawn it. I was devastated. Oh, withdrawn it. Withdrawn. All oh, right. It's not. Not. I, yeah. I suppose that's reasonable because I mean. Who else would have rented it? Yeah. 
I thought he meant someone else had rented it then. I was I was wondering who. Who's his you top mean earner? The, the his top earner. <laughs> his top earner. He went, went out of business soon after, didn't he? <laughs> you were you were subsidising him, really. Surprised <laughs> he didn't buy it so then he could rent it to you privately, you know. Well, so he took it, he went out, he went out of circulation. I see, all right, I see. Yeah. I thought he meant you went in, someone else had had rented it. You, that, you what you mean to say is that never happened. It was always there for you. No one else rented it. Yeah, it was always there. It was always there. <laughs> well, it's a, in a way that's in that sad the fact that the video company's taken that out of your hands and it would probably end up in a in the <laughs> landfill with a video cassette sword in the sorcerer. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, you still got, it's still got, it's still got a cult following. There's still people like me who hold a, a, a torch for this because if you go on eBay, you'll find loads of uh, memorabilia <laughs> and uh, stuff. You can buy the uh, screenplay from it. It did have a screenplay <laughs> uh, for 500 <laughs> quid. So it very much um, starts as it means to go on. It's got a bit of a Conan opening, hasn't it, in the darkness mm. with the uh, red calligraphy writing coming on. Cromwell is arriving at Tomb Island and he's brought a witch to some a sorcerer. Now, this is great, isn't it, because they crawl through these um, caves and in the walls are these faces that come to life. The opening scene is great. You get the faces in the wall that come to life. You get him bringing the sorcerer back to life, doesn't he, from the dead? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then the sorcerer tears the witch's heart out, doesn't he? In a, in a kind of um, with, a, with a spell. Face it though. I mean, he tore her heart out, but she was licking his fingers. What was that all about? As soon as. But why did he? I don't know why he didn't tear the heart out of that. The the soldier at the side of Cromwell. Yeah. Wait, hang on. What do you mean she's licking his fingers? What is that? Just is that justification so for murder? What world are you living? <laughs> what do you mean? You mean it sound like? Well, of course, he tore her heart out. She was licking his fingers. I've been summoned. I've been summoned from beyond the grave, from this nether nether region. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Uh, the yeah. seven, you know, the multi planes of hell. Um, wow. put my hand out, and this woman Look comes it. over and licks it. Yeah, all right. That's you, you'd, you'd say, you'd say gonna... well, you would, but you might say. You might, you've got two choices. You could say, do you mind stopping that? Or you could rip a heart out. I'd say ripping a heart out is an extreme reaction. Tough justice, tough justice. I suppose that's it's that kind of world, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah. This is the initial mistake of the film by calling the villain Cromwell. But he's yeah. such an iconic name. The thing with Cromwell, he looks constantly irritated, doesn't he? Yeah, he's got a very evil resting face, hasn't he? It's Richard Lynch, but he smiled with a stupid curly wig. Although, to be fair, not, not the worst wig in it. I don't think. Oh, no. In some ways, the opening scene is so good. The rest of the film has a lot to keep up with, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's really good. You know, the faces yeah. in the wall, the sorcerer, yeah. the witch. You, you just sit there and think, the first, the first 10 minutes of it, you think, this and it's, it's and fantastic. This it's is bathed, fantastic. It's bathed in like a suffused with this red light, isn't it? And this yeah. red light, it, I mean, Martin Scorsese would say you need to tone it down a bit because it's so red. And it, it, this sorcerer emerges, and the voice of the sorcerer, because mm. he's got like a a tigery roar. Here we go. Thou should thou, yeah. It, it just puts thou in front of everything. <laughs> he probably couldn't tell the witch off for licking his fingers because it'd take him so long to say it. Take him so long to do it. It's easy to just rip a heart out. He's fair enough, yeah. I, 
I think in the industry compromise between your um, your debate, your, you two arguing about the best film of the eighties. I think what you can say is the best opening scene of a fantasy film of the eighties. Okay, I'm winning ground here. Faint praise, perhaps, but you know it, it is it is a fantastic opening scene. Right. And then there's a then there's a sudden gear shift as the the lights come on. I remember, uh, you know, I think mm. I think my dad turned the brightness up right at the beginning of because uh, <laughs> he couldn't uh, see what was going on. <laughs> going on, and then <laughs> whoop, you get the uh, you get the thing like magnesium burning into yeah, it's too dark it's too dark at the beginning we see Erdan this uh, glorious kingdom um, by Richard uh, Richard and he's managed to see off Cromwell for all these years to have this utopia this Camelot behind uh, these white walled castles and Richard's there of course he's looking at a plant isn't he he's looking at a plant he's <laughs> a plant a weird beard no, well, yeah, that's what I mean. When you come, well, you talk about Cromwell's wig. Now, wow, what were they thinking with this guy? I mean, he's got this fake beard and this <laughs> Abraham Lincoln that, or something. Isn't it? Oh, he looks, awesome. he looks like he looks like uh, Cornelius from Planet of the Apes, doesn't he? <laughs> when when he walked into casting, did they say, "Oh my God, how bad did he look"? To to for them to feel that that yes, wig yes. and beard were necessary. He looks like a king that's walked off a playing card. Yeah, he? he does. Like a, he does. Oh, yeah, yeah. He does. The king beard. of yeah, the king of hearts or something. They paint a picture through a terrible voiceover, and uh, as I say, uh, Richard looking at a plant and his lovely wife uh, with the blonde hair coming up uh, through here, and it's painting a picture of bliss and of harmony. I think the film is biased towards him. We don't really know what Richard's like, do we? I think, you see, I'm going to put the case that Cromwell is a, a man of peace. It's like the Sauron, isn't it, the Ark? Yeah. You've got bugger all and they're trying to get a bit for themselves. Yeah, a bit for themselves, yeah. yeah. He's keeping he, yeah, he's it. Like, he's got all the lovely flowers. Yeah. Cromwell's just... Richard's, Richard's a protectionist, isn't he? He wants it all for himself. Yeah. He wants the privilege all for himself. Yeah. I think all that Cromwell wants to do is redistribute it. <laughs> now, his methods <laughs> not, might not be great. What Cromwell's done is use the power of the sorcerer to inflict a terrible plague upon Richard's armies. Allies are falling, the defences are falling, and so there's a sudden call to arms to Richard. And his um, son it appears, doesn't he? He's festering with wounds and he's looking terrible. He's come from the front. Yeah, I didn't know, I didn't know that were his son. One who staggered into the room, dying. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is the first. This is the first, first beginnings of some of the confusion, confusion. isn't it? About yeah, what don't know who's who. actually going on. And the little lad emerges, the young Talon. Keep Chegwin alike. Yeah, keep Chegwin. shuffle. But he's, you know, the Queen calls him a bastard, doesn't she? Bastard gets used. Yeah, yeah. Sweary. No, she. I missed that. I've only watched the. U- is it on the YouTube? Or has that been edited? I must watch that again. Yeah, she mm-hmm. says he, he bastard. And and the reason for that is Talon. Talon is Richard's son, but it's not her son. We start to get a picture of Richard and what's really going on. Do they really need to introduce that kind of element? Because it's absolutely nothing to do with the story, has it? No, well, it is because he goes as a rogue, doesn't he, then, Talon? He is the true heir to the throne. And this is where it gets complicated, you see. Yeah, he's, because... a, true, he's a true heir, but he's not like a... Le- you could argue he's not a legitimate heir, as in he's not got the same legitimacy, even though he, but he has got a sort of legitimacy. But 
it's, it's kind of it, it's probably just too subtle for it. Why? Why? Yeah. So mm. the, the the other thing to note in this scene, if you're watching, I've watched it a lot of times. The the consulary, so the advisor there, has a son and a and a daughter, Alana and uh, Mikos, who, who go away. Now, that's just his advisor, the king's advisor. Yeah. And they would later come on to be the rebel leaders. So is very that's Simon, is that Simon McCorkindale, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, that. Simon McCorkindale. Yeah. And uh, the uh, uh, the beautiful, uh, the, this is one of the reasons why I watched it so many times, <laughs> <laughs> the beautiful Kathleen Bella as uh, Alana. And uh, yeah. So they, they, they go away, they transport away. They really, Mikos has no claim to the throne, really. No. But Talon has. Richard hands him the sword and he says, you will avenge my death. And what a sword. Three blades, three blades, most, this sword. Most ridiculous sword in any fantasy. It's the Swiss, <laughs> the Swiss army knife of fantasy swords, it's, isn't it? It must weigh a ton. <laughs> It's ridiculous. That's perfect. Looks like one of them them things you use to slice a boiled egg with, you know, into bits <laughs> where you could you could bring what? it down on a big Who boiled egg it? and well, put I... it in three slices for you. There you go. Was this... <laughs> My memories of Asia, but was this in the year of the um, the razor wars where they were like oh like Gillette? Yes. <laughs> three blades. Yeah, it's a Gillette. Four yeah. blades, five Triple blades. Blade, yeah. It's Triple bladed blade. sword. It's the closest it's like... a man can get. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, we see as he makes his escape town that this blade shoots out and kills the people who are chasing his henchmen. A role-playing perspective, you'd always be thinking it's great, but a cruel games master would say, Well, you didn't go back and collect the blades, you fired. It's essentially just a normal sword now. You fired two yeah. blades, you dead, they're gone, you've lost those. But of course, when you see it again, <laughs> lo and behold, the blades are back. And so we see uh, we see Cromwell. Then we cut to Cromwell, who still not happy, even though of his his victory. And the sorcerer appears, doesn't he? He's out of breath. Though uh, uh, you know, he's, he's still mourning. He's still he's not happy. Cromwell's not happy. <laughs> At this point, you realise why the sorcerer's best in the dark, isn't he? When he's in the daylight, his latex isn't as moist. It looks like the John Major puppet from Spitting Image. A grey latex, isn't it, with a hood on? And uh, Cromwell betrays him by sticking a knife into him. <laughs> what was that a cliff? Just came out of nowhere, didn't it? So eight years later, we see the return of Talon, who is now 
uh, leader of a band of mercenaries. He's no and, Barry Gibb. And you get this sense of camaraderie. Who wouldn't want to be in a band of adventurers with Talon? Oh, we would have done, wouldn't we? Not about no, but we would have well, done. I would that. know. I would love to roam the land going from town to town. Yeah. Seeking fame and fortune. Let's pretend we're 14, 15 again, yeah. <laughs> with a, following the man with a three-bladed sword. This actual bit is was my favourite bit of uh, watching it because they're going to Edan, the, the actual town in the city. You get a sense that Mikos... Uh, uh, Richard Corkindale and his uh, sister uh, uh, growing this rebellion against uh, Cromwell's reign. It's that scene in the in the alley where Alana is overcome by Cromwell's men. Yeah, and he rolls yeah. up with his turkey leg. Led damsel in distress. It's, it is a classic kind of RPG intro, isn't it? You hear a scream down an alleyway. He looks like. Um, Butler's mate, doesn't he, from on the buses, the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the bus, the bus conductor from on the buses, yeah. Yeah, but his big teeth. Yeah. And he says, beat it, pig, or die. And Talon takes a bite on his turkey leg and he said, that's a small threat. That's a small a very threat, small yeah. threat. Yeah, a good joke, that, yeah. Carry on, sword <laughs> and the sorcerer. And that's where you can see the spirit, I think, of Richard Lester's Three Musketeers, can't you? Yes, yeah, there is a bit, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing, yeah. So um, he gets he gets um, drawn in, doesn't he, Talon, to uh, assist these um, these rebels. Alana strikes a deal with him. Word goes out that some of the rebels, including Roderick, have been holed up in a cave. The archers are preparing to kill them and destroy them. Would you as a games master allow that tactic then? So the archers are preparing to do the the rebels. The rebels are cornered and uh, Talon comes along with uh, one little vase of oil, pours it, and gets them. Would you you allow it? Certainly not then when we were playing RuneQuest. You'd see what... You're one guy and there's 20 arches, so you want to pour a jug of oil to, to set fire. You think, okay. Well, I don't, I don't know, because I, I think at that, at that point as a games master, I might start to think I've overdone it with the arches here and they're all going to die. I might allow it as a, as a way of the players surviving for, you know, we, we've only been playing half an hour, you know, everyone's brought the crisps and everything and oh, they're all going to die. One of modern game systems where you'd say, yeah, okay. You land wave and roll a successful setting fire to 20 arches. What is it, the apocalypse? <laughs> and you just kind of one dice roll. But in room quest, you'd have about three or four dice rolls. Success. It's success, yeah. but... And the but is, you only set fire to the clocks. That's it. That's <laughs> well, enough. In, in, That's in, enough in, to put them off the stride so you can escape. <laughs> in room quest, he wouldn't have even got... He would have failed his sneak roll, wouldn't he? In the back, so he wouldn't even got to the... Yeah. yeah, hiding cover 20%. <laughs> oh, I've failed. All oh, right. Oh, it's a critical, critical to your chest. You're dead. Oh, okay. What What I like about uh, Talon, he just can't be arsed with it. And so yeah. he nonchalantly tips the uh, oil and sends them up in flames. He's not quite charismatic Indeed. enough. To pull it off, you need you need someone, don't you? Again, going back to your three musketeers, the people who play the musketeers are charismatic actors, aren't they? Oliver Reed, he's a presence on screen, isn't he? And I think that's part of it. He, he lacks that presence. It needs an actor who who can pull that off. And what you've got is, is Barry is Barry Gibb, 
who who later in the film I think looks more like Eng- Engelbert Humperdinck, but that you know, that's just me. <laughs> but but it, I, that's not, it's not a nice, it's an unkind thing to say. I'm sure he's a competent actor, but it, it's that certain something, isn't it, in these kind of films? They did another scene prior to that, which makes me go back to that scene where he rescued the damsel, which he never quite pulled it off, apart from one liner. He becomes across a little bit smarmy. He doesn't quite win you over. He, he needed his band of helpers then. Um, we, we cut to Alanu once again. He's finding herself being confronted by Cromwell's soldiers who are trying to take advantage of her. She kicks them in the ghoulies. It's a Chekhov's kick in the ghoulies. That anticipates. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> a later kick in the ghoulies, doesn't it? So we'll... That's right. Three times she does it prior it's a signature move, I think. It is, yeah. We cut to the dungeon where the torturer in a mankini and his uh, baby oiled legs <laughs> is yeah. torturing uh, Mika. Now, the, the, one of the difficulties here, Mika is the brother of Alana and uh, the leader of the rebels and the one who feels that he has justified claim to uh, Cromwell's crown. They call him different things, Mikus, Mikus, Mukus. Everybody has a different name <laughs> can't for can't remember his name. Adding what? to the overall sense of confusion <laughs> where you're thinking, who is he and why are they torturing him? I'm not sure. Into into here comes Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth, we know, but we don't know why we know, because we're not given the information, but no. she's actually an undercover agent. Yes, he, he does. He makes he makes a point, Cromwell, of um, knowing knowing Elizabeth's name. And, and at that moment, I do think he's okay, really, isn't he? There you go. Yeah. I think he's misunderstood in this film. I think what you've got to realise is that I believe that I genuinely believe that he wants a bit of what Eden had and what uh, Richard had, and he was willing to go to extraordinary lengths to achieve his ambition. And he had this deal with Exusia, the sorcerer. He's unleashed an evil that he knows is still there. And the thing that you've got to appreciate, the thing, again, they don't make very clear enough, is at this point he's utterly paranoid that anyone in the court yes. could yeah. be the sorcerer Exusia. or could be an agent of Exusia. And he and this is part of the the things where the rebels, he believes that the rebels are actually agents of Exusia to uh, claim yeah. things because he knows that Exusia has made that threat to him that I yeah. will come and take it from And again him. again though this mind. this is one of the problems of the film isn't that, that there are these things going on in it that are actually quite subtle. So there's a degree of subtlety there that, that Cromwell is paranoid, but it it's like the film hasn't got the breathing space to, to explore that properly. Got more going on, perhaps, than your average fantasy film. It should have put more emphasis on that, the paranoia. Yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't it kind doesn't. of explore them because it's, no. it, it, it's being a fantasy film and rattling on, you know, because that's what it's fantasy films do. <laughs> we cut to the uh, dungeons again as uh, Talon is making his way through and we see some of the other uh, rebels uh, caught caught the killer rats come out of the things. So that's a great scene with the, the rats come out. And, well, you yeah. say you, you you say killer rats, I would say rats. <laughs> oh, rats. I mean, uh, let's give them no illusions. They're just rats. Well, they do kill. They go, whoa, a lot of rats come out. And you think, oh, was that, does that happen? They're a staple rat, of fantasy. When rats, oh, when rats kill, yeah. when rats kill, it's like something on a Channel Five documentary, <laughs> isn't it? 
And then uh, Talon at this point goes full on uh, Matt Berry, doesn't he? Meets the architect and the architect has been trapped in the dungeon. He has uh, built the dungeons. And so as a precautionary measure, uh, Cromwell has put him down there. And uh, he's got, I, I, I think he's he was the inspiration unwittingly for, have you seen my dice bag? Because he comes in. <laughs> yeah, well, I built this place. Yeah, yeah. He put me down here. I haven't come out. And again, again, Cromwell, not that bad. He's obviously thought, hmm, I need to, I need to do something with this architect. I could kill him, but I'm not that bad. I'll just put him in the, in the dungeon. He's, he's a moderate. He's a moderate moderation, isn't he? He's a moderate villain. Any other villain would just have him executed. He's like I think villain. I enjoyed this film, Steve. Well, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be like uh, Twelve Angry Men. This I'm going to turn at the end of it. You're going to, both going to say this is the best film I've ever seen, and I'll say <laughs> best I'm not film so I've sure ever where. seen. <laughs> I don't think so, because the worst wig is yet to come. <laughs> So the next bit is we go into the uh, bordello. It jumps yeah. about a bit, doesn't it? This thing jumps around a lot. Bit of nudity then, isn't it? Bit of 80s nudity. We say that it's an 80s obligatory boob shot, but these scenes, I think, you could take them from Game of Thrones, couldn't you? Mm. Oh, yeah, 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 mm. yeah. They start rounding up the mercenaries, don't they, at this point? So the mercenaries start getting involved. You know, they've been having a high old time in the city yeah. whilst all this has been going on. When they come in and say we need the, need to get the men together, and like the curtain rips back and the black guy suddenly pops his head out and smiles, and the camera pauses for a split second on him. I'm here, and he kind of just stands and he smiles at the camera like a goofy grin. But, but uh, again, you see, this is this is another this is another kind of problem of of it trying to do too much because it's trying to introduce then this idea that he's got these merry men with him, the, the merry men, isn't it? Like Robin hood, mm. but the film, the film doesn't have enough time to really develop them. So I think mm. that, that, that guy appearing like that is just kind of like, hello, I'm one of the merry men. I'm one of Talon's gang and we're a bunch of characters, aren't we? Well, not really. They might have distinct personalities, but it doesn't, it just doesn't have time to explore it. Does it before you know it, they're off to rescue Talon. Yeah, I think the uh, black guy with yeah. the with the hair. I think he went on to appear on Hitman and Hair, but I, I don't know. He might have. <laughs> Again, um, you start to see that Cromwell is thinking that Talon is Exusia himself, the sorcerer. So we see Elizabeth, don't we? This is where you know it's clear that Elizabeth is some kind of agent or so, and he's trying mm. to extract some information from. We've got the torturer. He's about to uh, cut out her tongue. Pretty, yeah, yeah. pretty nasty uh, scene here. It is, and I think it is that strange thing with the tone, isn't it? Like, you know, he cut out someone's tongue, but then the the scene in the bordello earlier is is almost like I expect Charles Hawtrey to appear, disguised <laughs> in a large Roman urn, and so, all over the place. And so, what we now we now see is the uh, build up of the big banquet scene, preparing for the marriage of uh, Cromwell and. Alana Talon is uh, uh, being crucified on the cross. So, yeah. it's an unusual. I have to say, it's an unusual wedding reception, isn't it? When they all walk in <laughs> for the banquet, and M- Engelbert Humperdinck is being crucified. I mean, I've heard Engelbert Humperdinck crucify some songs, but not That's to have crucified. him actually crucified at 
you know, and, and they don't kind of bat an eyelid. They're all come. Oh, well, that's, that's interesting. Why does he crucify? Why does he do that? I don't know. Why don't they just kill him? I'll just put him in the dungeon. <laughs> Cruc- crucify him. Well, it's got to draw be a wedding, wedding novelty. Yeah. So we see we see Cromwell and Crom- Cromwell's um, costume in this scene is pretty good. He's got this tall crown that emphasises. He looks like Sauron, doesn't he? It's, uh, it does it, like I thought that. Yeah. Sauron yeah, it's good. Crown, it is good costume actually. Yeah. It is. Yeah. All these uh, people are attending from uh, different parts of the country and different nations are congregating. It's the worst yeah, they're like, the they're like, like worst wig cunt. It's like RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> it is. There's two guys <laughs> with a curly a wig and, a, and a, yeah. this medieval stupid wig. And his face yeah. with the bald wigs. Daft wigs in the bloke being crucified. So we're cut now to the uh, dungeon again and we see uh, once again the uh, torturous oiled leg. The next thing is head is put down, yeah. isn't it? Who's actually moving the wheel of the stone? Because <laughs> 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 the torturer, the torturer's pumping. Yeah, the it's a, it's just a, stop. So he keeps pumping it and then gets still. his face punched. <laughs> it's a great scene, but it'd be better if it was like water driven. Yeah, yeah it's like a his knife, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. The, the, the other black act pushes his face into it. It's a really good yeah. scene, but you just stop doing that with your leg. And I, don't, I don't think it's the first time he's appeared on a grinder. So anyway, <laughs> and then we cut then, and this is, this is uh, you can see that the different leaders from the different places are starting to conspire and getting themselves ready. This surely must have been the inspiration for the Red mm-hmm. Wedding. This, this Very this. similar, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the balconies, and uh, tell him uh, this is he's, he's got his Sean Connery quips book, hasn't he? Here, it's a small world, your majesty. As he, he, he recognized somebody, doesn't he? And then we have the slow motion, don't we? As, as the movement starts, as he pulls Zombies. himself free, yeah. And this, and this nails. fight, I think, this, this fight is brilliant. As he pulls himself free, every all hell breaks loose. The uh, crossbows are, are coming out, and and it's an absolutely. Looking at your faces, you don't look as convinced as I am that this is a, a great fight scene. I'm beginning to think. I'm beginning to think this film is your Blake Seven, <laughs> in the way that nobody can convince me that Blake Seven has any bad elements to it. This this is your Blake Seven, isn't it? You've watched this film so many times, it's kind of brainwashed you in the same way that I've been brainwashed by Blake Seven in, into thinking there's nothing wrong with it at all. It's a certainly all-encapsulating fight, isn't there? People jumping on tables, it's yeah. like a barroom brawl, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Again, once again, I well, think this... It's not as good as his Conan fights, but it's all the proper moves. <laughs> Yeah, this is just I know, he's jumping around his underpants. Yeah, there is a problem. There is a problem with his pants being a bit short. Aren't they? His pants are a bit too. As we know in, in RuneQuest, the man with no armor dies first. Yeah, <laughs> and he seems yeah, like the loincloth's too short. It's like eighties footballer's shorts, isn't it? You know, it's too short. Playing that once again. This is where the sword makes an appearance. Everybody hates this sword, but I think it's fantastic. The wrong core. It's terrible. Uh, it's terrible. The, the, the Gillette sword. Gillette sword. We have the reveal that the consulari that has been following Cromwell around, Alana, kicks him into the balls and 
kicks. He has no balls, is that the girlies and he well yeah, he's either got none or he has some kind of spell of protection on his nuts. The bark skin off the <laughs> bark skin, yeah. Bark skin underpants. Plus four armor class underpants or something like that. Because he doesn't feel it, does he? Once again, we have a brilliant transformation scene where the sorcerer's revealed. Gets me every time. I've seen it lots of times. And it splits its face and it kind of appears through here. It comes up that comes up like a glove puppet, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant. Fantastic. <laughs> the sound effect. The basement scene is a good scene. Yeah. I'll give it that. This this sword is firing up pink sparks as they're uh, battling it out uh, down there. He does make a mistake, though, doesn't he, Talon? But he's ready to kill uh, Cromwell, Zeus here. And he, he, he kind of interferes stupidly, doesn't he? Instead of letting them, one of them kill him and starting, he kind of said, I'm, I have no argument with you or something. And he kind of jumped, he jumps in stupidly because they would have, one of them would have killed him. Instead, he ends up fighting them both. It's a greater evil. Yeah. Zeus is a greater evil. What? Cromwell proves a hard fall to beat on Zeusia, doesn't he? He expends the uh, resources of the sword. There's also a little sword hidden within it. (laughs) And, of course, a flick blade gauntlet as well he's got. Every character that you had after this, uh, Eddie, had a (laughs) flick blade gauntlet. (laughs) But there's more in the sorcerer, like Glenn Close in uh, Fatal Attraction, the sorcerer gets up again. (laughs) And he's killed again. Stabbed again. Leaving Talon to go in a rope across the top of the banqueting hall for That's no right. apparent reason whatsoever. <laughs> he swings from the balcony. It never shows him getting off to <laughs> no, the end, does it? It's the wall. So yeah, right he rides off there into sunset, doesn't, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, for, Rod- for future, future Roderick joins him. And uh, we're promised the tales of the ancient empire. Before we sign off, what? how do you think this has influenced uh, our gaming at the time? And uh, what can we take from this uh, to inspire our games? Well, I wouldn't have had a three-bladed sword, for starters. <laughs> it is like some first edition D&D magic <laughs> item, isn't it? The sword of many blades or something like yeah. that. You know? The story's quite good. It's not so much a film that you take things from for role-playing games. It's more a film that almost watched to confirm role-playing as if it was a role-playing game because it has lots of things in it that are like a role-playing game even even like the tone the shifts in tone are like a role-playing game because role-playing games do shift do shift tone don't they they go from being silly daft heroic gruesome all sorts of things but it's not so much that you take things away from it i think it's more that it it sort of echoes back or mirrors back role-playing games for gaming though i quite like this idea of somebody summoning an evil that they can't control because that's a trope that we gets used i think it's used in an interesting way here that the evil is somewhere one of these characters for cromwell his story is is that he knows that he's overstretched himself he knows that he's done wrong and he knows that Somewhere, this paranoia it comes from it. You know, the, are these rebels going to be the people who exude uh, here? Are they the people? Are the yeah. other rival nations who want to see me fall? Are they? You know, so this sense of paranoia that he's got, of 
course, it's not explored very well in it. But I think for gaming... Why don't we write our own role-playing game, the Sword and the Sorcerer role-playing game? <laughs> <laughs> How much, beer, how, much of, how much of that, what, what's it called, that beer you're drinking? How much of that have you had? You whap weasels. <laughs> <laughs> That's what oh, we're going to call it. Let's call the game that, whap weasel. <laughs> whap weasel, a role-playing game based on the sword and the sorcerer. <laughs> this is a bit like all the other role-playing games you play. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> the, the, the market is already oversupplied. I don't know about you two, but I'm, I think I'm going to... You can go home now if you want. I'm going to watch it again. So thanks, uh, thanks, Eddie. I'm going to watch Conan. Cheers. <laughs> I'm, going to watch, I'm going to watch Blake 7. <laughs> At the time of recording, I'm about to run a Dragon Quest scenario set in the world of the Sword and the Sorcerer, an actual tale from an ancient empire for the Patreon monthly one-shot club. Eight years have passed since Cromwell of Aragon usurped the land of Eden. Mika, son of King Richard's advisor, is raising a rebellion against the greedy tyrant. He needs agents, true to the cause, to go to the caves of Tomb Island, where Xusia the Terrible was roused from a thousand years' sleep to assist Cromwell in his foul invasion. The player characters will escort a crone, a mage from the College of Greater Summonings, who holds a secret to an artefact that will liberate Eden. What dangers remain in the caves of Exousia? I'm very excited about it. There was a sequel to Sword and the Sorcerer made in 2010 by Payan, but it's not very good and it lacks some of the flair of the original. Best to pretend that it doesn't exist and work with the players to develop a more fitting alternative. And Dragon Quest is a perfect fit. Thanks to Chris Klug for the interview. He's back in the next part to discuss James Bond Stargate and The Smoking Ruins for RuneQuest. Thanks to Rob for his first lasting everything. As he mentioned, he's active on the Grognard Files Discord community. He's currently at the forefront of developing an alternative Appendix N, the Appendix Grog, with recommendations for further reading and watching. Check Patreon for an invite link. If in doubt, contact me and I'll send you one. On Twitter, at the RPG Librarian exercise is continuing. I'm photographing and sharing an item from the Great Library of RPGs every day in 2021. Magazine Monday, Science Fiction Tuesday and Thursdays that feature books about role-playing are now established. Alongside this Twitter account is a book club. The Elusive Shift by John Peterson is going to be the first featured book. We meet on the first Saturday of the month. Again, if you want to know more, then send me a message. In this episode, we've talked a little bit about how the magic works in Dragon Quest. We'll come back to it next time. But if you want to hear more about RPG magic, why not listen and subscribe to Frankenstein's RPG, a new podcast panel show hosted by Dave Patterson, whose first, last and everything was covered in the first part of the Dragon Warriors episode. The podcast was a twinkle in his eye at that point, but now it's a reality. And I appear on the panel for the second episode about magic and initiative. Virtual Grogmeet is still, at the time of recording, looking for GMs. Head over to thegrognardfiles.com for details. There's a lot going on. 
If you want to keep up to date with the latest schemes and projects, you'll find them in the Patreon newsletter, which goes out at the beginning of the month as a webzine. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast by listening, sharing, telling others about it, reviewing it at your podcast provider, commenting over at thegrognardfiles.com and on social media. And thanks to those who invest in us at Patreon. We've had some new people join us in January, so for those who are at the sofa, so good level, we'll be visiting the random tables from the Enchanted Wood Supplement for Dragon Quest to give you a virtual gift. Join us next time for more Chris Klug, Judge Blythe Rules Dragon Quest and a brand new segment. Until then, adios amigos. <laughs> <laughs>